Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Sunday, April 18th, 2021, episode 193. Nothing in particular. I feel like today's show falls into one of those shows that squarely lands it in the hodgepodge category. I asked Sharon if she had an idea for a title for the show, and she said, what's it about? And I said, nothing in particular. It's just a random mix of topics and current events. I think these are good shows to encounter every once in a while because they kind of clear the books about what's been going on around here. My sense is some of my long-term listeners know me pretty well. Yes, that's a little weird when I meet someone for the first time. I know nothing about them, but they know me like we've been friends for years. Think about that odd dynamic for a minute. My only hope, which I think I'm confident about, is that I'm the same person in person as I am on the show, and that if you like the show, hopefully you think I'm an okay guy. After all, who doesn't want to be liked? To that point, these type of shows tend to let you in on more of the the day-in-the-life aspect of what goes on around here, And I think it helps you to understand that we're just normal folk getting by, just like everyone else. So to this episode's chitter-chatter, we bought an extractor. I'll tell you about the first impressions as we look to put it into service for the first time. I'm still on the quest to firm up my jelly, and I have another chapter to share. I had a Kevin moment about something I needed to get off my chest. This thing simply gives me the creeps. Speaking of jelly, my middle has got a little jiggle. I want to talk about another installment of It's Not How I Feel and my quest to get on track as COVID has killed my mojo. Roundtable number five, a twofer. I have two books to recommend, and I think they go together well as a package and will explain how they complement each other. The last roundtable will revisit getting to the final stretch of cleaning and prepping equipment for the 2021 season. And if that wasn't enough, at the end of the episode, we'll talk about what's going on around here with the bees in a roundtable local hive report. That sure is a lot to get to, so what do you say? Let's get this party started. Roundtable number one, Lyson 20 Framer. It's all set up in the garage. My twin and I made the run up to Better Bee, and now we, the Englands, are a proud owner of a 20-frame Lyson honey extractor. We happen to have three medium supers to extract, and I recently purchased boxes and boxes, thank you, Raritan Valley Beekeepers Association, of one-pound honey jars to fill with the bounty of the bees. Sharon reinstalled 240 jars and lids, and she has them sitting out to dry in anticipation of extraction on Tuesday. It's kind of a cool sight to see all those jars lined up on the dining room table, inverted and drying. Ah, Kevin moment. Honey jars, straight out of the manufacturer's sealed boxes. How about you? Do you wash them? Sharon and I had this discussion earlier and decided as is evident by the disclosure, that it's better to be on the safe side and rinse the bottles. Anytime you buy something for a manufacturer, a lot of times they tell you to rinse them and people go, ah, pishaw. 
the fact is sometimes with different things that they man manufacture there's releasing agents and other stuff that are on the products and yeah i think it's safer to do it we didn't wash them with detergent just rinse them with good hot water and wipe them down with a lint-free cloth we did notice that the jars, which were sitting upside down in the boxes, had a light coating of dust on the bottoms, which were towards the top, if you follow. But the insides proper seemed clean. I would think, depending on how long they were in storage in those boxes, there is the possibility that the remnants of the dust from the actual cardboard could be there. But since we're likely to label and sell some of these jars to others, we took the high road and cleaned them first. So the question is, if you sell honey, how do you handle this? Inquiring minds want to know if you take that step or not. If you care to share, drop me a note, Kevin at bkcorner.org. And thanks for that. End of Kevin moment. Coming back to the extractor, it's a thing of beauty. The device itself came screwed to a wooden crate as it came out of the shipping container when we picked it up and I left it still screwed to that for a base. In the past when we borrowed the association's extractor I made a practice of screwing that one down to some wooden planks you know to stabilize it from wobbling. While I'm hoping the new design of the particular extractor we purchased will not wobble as much by my way of thinking, everything's going to wobble if the frames are off kilter. It'd probably be best to have it screwed to something. So I used my saw to cut down the pallet a little bit to the form factor of the extractor, made it smaller, and that's going to serve the purpose for the time being. I have a little hand cart that I have in the garage to move things around. And having the pallet underneath, it allows me to slip that hand cart underneath and move it around. I got a funny reaction from Sharon upon opening the box for her. She said, holy bleep, Kevin, that thing is huge. Uh, yeah, babe. <laughs> it's a little bigger than what we were used to, but I think we're going to get over that pretty quickly. Especially because we can load a full honey super in it. And usually when we do this, we do one or two. So could you imagine, load the whole thing up, spin it once wash it out and be done with it. It does pose one problem now, and that's where am I going to put it in the garage. I think I kind of have a place picked out, but that's going to necessitate moving some stuff around. Our whole life is a series of taking things out and putting them away. Don't you agree? I read that in a book once. We plugged the thing in, got acclimated to how it runs, sounds, in anticipation of Tuesday and spun it up to see how it works. Unlike the internet reports, it didn't make any squealing, whistling sounds. It was smooth and quiet as can be. I don't recall if I spent any time describing what we purchased, and in case that I did, I'll be brief with this. The model we own is a 20-frame license extractor from the Better Bee catalog. Better B is the exclusive dealer for Lyson in the United States. 
Unlike most designs, and what appealed to me in particular when I first saw this device years ago, is the motor is underneath the tub. Most of the extractors I've used and have observed in use have the motor that sits over the tub. This one, the motor drives the basket from underneath. On top, it simply has a hinged bar that goes over the center with two wing-like clear covers that flap up and allow you easy access to put the frames in. That appeals to me. I think that's kind of cool. I know with the Maxant one we used, when you tilt it up, it kind of leans against the motor and sometimes it's difficult to get the frames in there. So we haven't used it yet. That's for Tuesday. But what I did notice in looking at it is if you want to remove that top bar, you just basically unscrew two nuts. You could pull it up and then pull the basket out and extract everything and clean it if you really wanted to do a deep clean. It comes with the customary warnings inside that if you pull the basket out, you're exposing the area where the grease is and you have to clean it. Yep, read the instructions. Sharon read them. How to clean it, care for it, operate it. I'm going to read them a little more thoroughly. I think you could literally just rinse it out. You don't have to take the basket out, but it's good to know the full extent of things. As it stands right now, it sure looks like a smart investment and a nice piece of equipment. And this I do remember saying is that we're probably going to be beekeepers for quite some time now, and now we have our own extractor, and whenever we need it, we're just going to fire it up. Maybe you'll recall that in the last extracting foray, I did a really dumb thing and tried to warm our honey by putting it in a room with a small ceramic heater. The mistake was that it has a fan, our little heater, and the fan blew on the comb, got hot enough to melt the wax, which thereby allowed the honey to flow all over the floor. Oops. I'm at it again. <laughs> The honey was sitting outside. It's been cool at night. I brought it in, set it in that same closet with the same heater, but this time I pointed it the other way. The heater is facing the wall. Our hope is it's going to warm up the honey, which honestly made it easier to spin out last time without the calamity of melting the comb this go-round. And yes, I've snuck in there and peeked on it every once in a while. It seems to be just fine. Yeah. No goofs this time. So the Lysen extractor, we'll let you know how it goes after we use it. But I can tell you already that the, the thing is just uh, an engineering beauty, beautiful thing. You can look at the extractor in the catalog if you care to. Betterbee.com also. I'll say this too, and this is for a future episode. When we went up there, we got a tour of Betterbee by the owner. And I recorded some things in talking to him, and in a future episode, I'll bring that back. But for this one, I have so much that I'm going to move past it, but that'll be interesting to recount. So count on that. Lysen extractor. Nice, nice, nice. Hopefully, it will be a great relationship with that thing. Roundtable number two, I call this one Jeepers. I got to get this off my chest. You know, sometimes while I'm bored in conference calls, I split my time paying attention to what people are muttering about and occasionally browsing Facebook. I would guess I'm not alone in that behavior, but it does show that sometimes 
I leisurely scroll mindless through my feed and then I encounter it. Being a beekeeper and having a penchant for clicking on things beekeeping, it's not a surprise to see Facebook algorithms serve up some bee-related content here and there as I scroll along. I mostly appreciate that, but there's this one thing. It's disturbing on all accounts, this beekeeping image that keeps floating to the surface every once in a while in my feed, and it just creeps me out. I have to ask those amongst me, fellow beekeepers, have you seen this thing that weirds me out? Because as soon as I say it, I know you're going to know. It's a picture of a young, forlorn child with these really manly arms, theoretically hugging an oversized honeybee. No. No on all accounts. This image is disturbing and it completely misses the mark in the messaging it's attempting to convey. It's supposed to pull at all your heartstrings and make you think the youngster is cuddling the bee, holding it to his bosom, but it's all wrong. Now that I've said this, the next time you see this image, you're going to look at it with a more discerning eye. Not only is it creepy that he's holding on to a stinging insect you know in an alfred hitchcock birds kind of way but what's with the giant nuclear mutant bee what's the deal with that and what's with the grip of the kid the young innocent child has muscular forearms of an adult and hands of steel and a grip on that insect that would have it gasping for air it almost feels like a diehard movie where it's squeezing the villain The kid's right arm is holding a headlock on the bee, which has no appearance of something in the context of cuddling in any way. I I just, every time I see that image, it's a thing of nightmares. I simply say no. It's a disturbing image for me personally, one that leaves me scarred. (laughs) I'll have a link to those who simply can't bear to ignore your curiosity and see it. This is the one time I will not encourage you to click on the link in the show notes, and I'll just leave it at that. Roundtable number three, I call this one Jelly Momentum. Still on my quest to solve the paradox that is honey jelly. When we last met, I had told a tale of woe that the jelly retry to prove the actual recipe work did not set. There's nothing sadder than the day you are making jelly and discover that it will not set. Uh, That's a Kevin moment. There's nothing that finer than a day in Carolina in the morning. I don't know why that came in my brain. I think that's a Bugs Bunny tune. I just spit that out, sorry. End of Kevin moment. Jelly will not set. Fast forward to agar. Agar. And we have rescued the lowly syrup that would not set. Let me explain what it is that I'm speaking of. If you've been following the last couple episodes, you know I've been on a quest to transform liquid honey into jelly. I think I shared the sentiment that I was looking to try a recipe for the sake of trying it and learning. More out of curiosity than anything in my previous attempts have not fared well. Since the last episode, I did a little more research, and before I disclosed what I learned, I thought I would share 
Some sentiment I saw in a forum post when someone else posed the question that some of you might have been thinking, why would you want to take a perfectly good honey and change it? Isn't it perfectly good honey? Why look to alternate? In addition, if you adulterate it with something else, is it still honey? In the forum post, someone replied with a story that they made jelly because they had a family member that does not do runny anything. No runny egg yolks, no runny syrup on their pancakes, and no runny honey. That person's logic was that if they could figure out how to make jelly that is not runny, then their family member might, member might try and eat honey. That's an interesting way to put it, and it harkens me back to my commentary about why I like creamed honey on a peanut butter sandwich. While creamed honey is firm, and often not runny, it can kind of be runny in some instances if you know what I mean. Especially if it's really warm, creamed honey will flow. It just doesn't flow as fast as runny honey. Jelly. It does not flow at all. So that's why you would want jelly. But alas, I come back to my tale of woe. The last one I made was honey syrup. Which, by the way, was really, really good on pancakes. Ask me how I know. In my research to solve the problem, I learned that agar, spelled A-G-A-R, is like pectin, but not the conventional pectin. But it has all the ability of conventional pectin in a vegan kind of way. And I might add, to make something gel, apparently not much of it is needed. Agar is a derivative of seaweed. It comes in a powder, just like conventional pectin. And you simply stir it in, heat it up for a minute or so to activate it, and then the mixture cools and it gels. So I put my honey syrup back in a pot, three-quarter teaspoon of agar, brought it to the boil, boil for one and a half minutes, returned it to the jars, let it sit on the counter until it was room temperature, placed it back in the fridge, and allowed it to cool overnight. The honey jelly angels went to work, and in the morning it was jelly. Rescue complete, and the third time to try and save that particular batch was the charm. So that batch is finally jelly, which is nice, and I'm going through it. I said, <laughs> you know me, I would fix on, fixate on this until I figured it out, and what I've relayed is not the end of the story. I found an additional beekeeper conversation that expressed how much liquid pectin was required in order to firm up the jelly recipe from syrup to jelly, and I ordered liquid pectin product for my lab experiments. In the next two weeks, I'm going to try and finish off my honey jelly, and then I'll be ready to make another batch and give it a new go and test the new formulation. If the bee gods are willing, I'll be back in a future episode with a solid jelly recipe that you can count on. One last question to answer and this is a philosophical one. If you use honey to make jelly, after you're done, is it honey anymore? How about that? That might bake your noodle, huh? 
to me, to me, I think I have the answer. It's no longer honey, it's jelly. While honey is the main ingredient, we do not call jelly made with sugar, sugar jelly. I'm thinking once we add pectin to it, it's jelly, and honey is relegated to an ingredient. But it does make you stop and think, though, doesn't it? The quest for honey jelly is going strong. Stay with me, everybody. We'll get there. Roundtable number four, I call this one a fine pair. I mentioned in my last show that I recently finished an audiobook version of Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped the Nation by Tammy Horn Potter. This book was written in 2005, and having just finished it, I would say it is as relevant today as a resource as when it was written and belongs on your shelf or in my case, in your virtual library, if you're like me with an Audible account. I cannot help but think that this book works in harmony with another book in my virtual library, The Beekeeper's Lament, How One Man and Half a Billion Honeybees Helped Feed America, by Hannah Nordhaus. Horn Potter's book takes you through a thorough and comprehensive journey of how honeybees literally helped shape our nation. One of my bigger takeaways was how instrumental the bee industry was in our nation, and there's evidence aplenty as you work through how our nation was formed, and even to current times. You hear different things in passing as a beekeeper. Bees were brought in by colonists, but most of what you hear and learn in passing in training courses and people talking are sound bites. And for me personally, I always felt empty. I wanted to have, and now I have, an in-depth understanding of how it all played out, how it all related. I'm a junkie for this kind of stuff, and I pretty much listened through the entire book in a few sittings. And honestly, I'm pretty sure it's a book that I'll go back to in time and get even more, picking up on some things that did not resonate. Now that's a Kevin moment. I find that when I'm listening to an audiobook, there are times when my mind wanders. Unlike a real book that you're holding in your hand when you kind of pause and stop for a second, an audiobook carries on while your mind is processing something you heard. There are times when I listen to a book for the second time and pick up on the things that I missed in the first go-round. That's what I meant by that end of Kevin moment. The book was enjoyable. And there were little asides that I won't dwell on, but I'll share that I appreciated all the different nuances. Things like how women played an important role along the way, and some of the interactions between the prominent figures that we know to be the father of beekeeping, like Langstroth and the other people that influenced him and such. The book mostly follows a timeline, so it was cool to see how all of the activities led to what is the modern approach that we have now. If one can appreciate the full history of beekeeping in the United States, then you'll also like the Beekeeper's Lament book. The byline for Nordhaus's book states, This book outlines the industrial-scale commercial beekeeping industry and provides the modern period of events that shaped how large-scale beekeeping is done. 
That book primarily follows the story of John Miller, who in his own right is an institution. As the first book chronicles the history back to before colonial times, this one takes a relatively modern approach, spending a lot of time on the period when CCD came to prominence and exploring the behind-the-scenes operations of a modern commercial beekeeping outfit. Again, as beekeepers, you may or may not have ever been exposed or learned about those things in the scale that you're going to hear. But you certainly can gain an appreciation for it, and as beekeepers, you're going to connect with the content so much more than someone who simply bought the book out of curiosity, because these books are somewhat marketed to the general public, like get an insider's view of beekeeping. So you have an inside scoop, so to speak. Now, my one comment about the Lament book on Audible is tied to the narrator, not the content of the book. I love and dislike her all at the same time. She does an admirable job at narrating the book and the subject matter, but sometimes she talks so fast that I literally had to rewind her. I rewind here and there and listen again to understand what she said. The narration moves really fast, and contrary to tips about listening to a book at 1.2 speed to make it go by faster, perhaps this is the first book that I might encounter that would say, you could be advantageous to slow it down below the real speed. Now, I haven't listened to that book in a while, but my reminisce about it is, that's what I remember, how fast she read. To the point of picking up things, though, I did listen to that book twice, simply because I thought it was so fascinating. So, two books to consider for your library, and if you ever wanted a bigger understanding of how things work, honey hunters, moving bees out west, massive pollination contracts, all peppered with the ins and outs of keeping bees, do consider either one or actually both of these books. Uh, Kevin Bowman, two things just popped into my head. If it's not evident, my brain searches for things to ensure I don't leave stuff out later. And then I'll be kicking myself, thinking to myself, you know, you could have shared this one thing or another while you were talking about that subject and you're never going to come back to it. So I always try to pause at the end and think, is there anything else I'm missing? The first is John Miller, the subject of the Lament book. I had breakfast with him one morning. It was in the days prior to actually reading the book. I was sitting at a table all alone at one of the conferences eating an omelet, and this gentleman ambled up and asked if he could join me. We shared amicable greetings, and he seemed relieved to partake in a quiet breakfast and simply have a chat with another beekeeper with no fanfare. He asked me where I was from, And, as customary, I gave him a little background. And when it turned to him, he said who he was, and me being me, studied as I am because of my bee obsession, I knew who he was. I just politely made conversational chit-chat with him, not fussing over anything, and as such, he was approachable and shared a few stories and some sentiment about the industry, and then we parted ways. I think if I had fawned over him, it would have wrecked his whole morning. 
it was kind of cool that we just hung out like two beekeepers sitting at a breakfast bar. <laughs> uh, secondly, this is for Paul and Tracy. I listened to the last Hive Jive podcast out of England, and it so happens that Paul stated that they were looking to establish a unique kind of feature where they could share some coverage of beekeeping books. Uh, Paul, buddy, this was serendipity. I promise you it was not a plot to surreptitiously muscle in on the idea. In fact, I had planned this before I listened to your latest episode, and you can be trust assured that I have no plans to get here anytime soon, meaning the book thing. As an aside, it's good to hear you guys back behind the microphone and everyone take the time to subscribe to their show. It's one of my favorites and I always listen as soon as they put out an episode. End of Kevin moment. I'll have the names of the books I mentioned in the show notes in case you didn't get a chance to jot them down. Look for show 193. Roundtable number five, I call this one See It Jiggle. This is a story about the current state of my middle. I'm sweet and I have a little jiggle. <laughs> I find it ironic that I'm going to talk about my soft middle after talking about jelly, but I digress. Actually, it's about coming back to something I covered in a past episode where I lamented about it's not how I feel. I'm there again. I'm missing going to the gym, and I suppose I'm not different when I think about the doldrums of COVID life. I will admit that I feel a bit off my game at times, sort of overriding funk. But it's not how I feel, it's more of a physical thing. It's not about having a bad mental image about oneself and asking to take care of that it's more about the core capability to do the basic activities in life without the risk of injury. If you are new to beekeeping, or perhaps this can serve as a reminder, beekeeping, the act of keeping bees, will require physical exertion. Bending, moving, lifting, reaching, pulling, digging, sweating, repetitive motions, bop it. I could think of a ton of different examples where this dynamic comes into play. And as spring is in full swing, I kind of wonder how out of shape am I? I had a period pre-COVID where I was going to the gym one, two, three times a week. And well, I've been a slog lately, gained a few pounds, and I generally just don't feel good about it. As bad as it was to be an office dweller in the previous life, I've come to realize that at work, at least, I'd go upstairs to get into the building, second floor, come down to lunch, walk to conference rooms, to go to meetings, walk in and out of the parking lot, just move around here and there all day long. At home, I'm sitting in this chair in my man cave. The most exercise I get is going upstairs to make my coffee and raid the pantry. <laughs> like so many times in life, that little voice has been critical to me because it knows better. And half-heartedly, I started to do what was right to rectify the situation. And now, well, it's honest-to-goodness warm weather, and I realize things are getting real. I feel like I'm going to see the motivation to get some form of regime other than my morning walk. 
All of this is to say, how are you doing these days? I guess I'm speaking to any of you out there that find yourself in the same place, perhaps, and care to join me in conquering the climb. My plan starts with an odd tactic first. Stretching. I feel like I need to get some flexibility in place. I don't want to do any high-intensity stuff. By that I mean calisthenics, which they call HIT, H-I-I-T, these days. I just want to have a little stretch in my step. As beekeepers, I'm coming back to, we underestimate how much we do. We lean over, we lift, we twist, we push, we scrape, we move frames out, hold them out at arm's length. And in simple life, the exercises that some of the trainers do, that you find on YouTube, they, they don't work. They remind me of the comedian John Panette. I tried yoga once. I love the idea of it, yoga. It's a mind-body experience. But there's no beginner's yoga. Basically, bend over, take your head, stick it up your... I can't do that. They said, do what you can, John. I couldn't do that either, so I left. Give me a sit-up. I say, oh, nay, nay. Sit-ups, push-ups, pull-ups. I do downs. I don't do ups. Ups defy gravity. Gravity is the law. I obey the law. <laughs> I just, I could go on all day for John Pinnett. I absolutely loved him. And if you have not discovered John in this world, how do you feel? Good. How do you feel? Good. How do you feel? Good. So how do you feel? I feel like God is punishing me. <laughs> Yeah, that's how I feel about exercise these days. I just can't get into the routine of it. So I started a few weeks ago. The going was tough, but I set an alarm for every two hours. And while I'm sitting here, that thing pops up. And while I'm on conference calls, people don't know it. I'm laying on a mat, stretching, getting myself ready. I cleaned out the gym area. I set the treadmill up. I've been walking and just trying to get that core back in place. On top of that, yeah, this was not supposed to be a life lesson. I've been tracking my food. That, that's really the one thing that I have to do is, uh, yeah, I tend to overeat. And the only way I learned this back in the lean line days is just, just get Zen, focus, track what you eat, pay attention to it, and it all comes into place. I find myself doing squats now while I'm waiting for my pour over coffee to drain through the filter. And I compress myself into a ball by hugging my legs and ankles. Cat pose, arch move, much better. Side bends, toe touches, much better. Full twists while laying on the ground, much better. And well, about all of it is moving along and soon I plan to get back into that weightlifting phase. Shot number one of COVID's in the books. Shot number two is coming May 6th. And honestly, if things don't decay after people's you know, have experience out in the world, I, I'm going to rejoin the gym. But in the, minim, in the minimum, I am going to play at home. Play along with me, everybody. So that fits in well with the work required for the beekeeping season. Maybe it's actually a little bit too late, but the way I see it, it's never too late. And I hope that perhaps this reminds you, do a little yoga, do a little twisting, stretching, Work on that core. 
I really did feel better the last few years working out. More stamina, more strength. And you know what? If I don't get with the stick, I'm going to dread working in the heat of summer. And I know that that is motivation enough to get with the program. Just a little friendly public service announcement. Thanks for listening. Roundtable number six, call this one Cleaning Frames Part 2. Part 3, Part 4. I don't remember where I am in this journey. To that point, it's been a journey. It's been um, quite a bit of work when you have hundreds of frames to clean them all. And I literally think I'm down to the last two boxes of frames. 20 or 30 frames to go. I took some of my older, older crusty combs and I put them in old nuke boxes that I had and I set them around the property for swarm traps. I think uh, as the weather gets warmer, I'm going to go out and spray a little swarm commander in there, but I put them out early so that the bees would find them and start to investigate them. It is swarm season. You know, once we get past April 15th here in New Jersey, that's when game on. We get to game on. So I had planned to do this a long time ago and never got a chance to do it. So I finally set up the video camera. I have this process that has been honed over the time of doing all this to clean the frames and shot my method for how I cut the comb out of the frames and scrape them off and clean them up and the different tools that are used in techniques. So at some point I will produce that and put it out and I'm happy to have documented that because I think the process I came up with is pretty efficient and I want to remember it for next time because I'm positive someday there will be a next time. I've been taking each of these frames and putting them in boxes and labeling the boxes with frames no foundation. The reason I'm telling you that is I do not make a habit of taking ready, prepped, built frames and putting foundation in them for a future day. This may not be rocket science, but what I've found is I've done that in the past, thinking I'll just walk in, grab a box when I need one with foundation and go. And 99% of the time what I find is that the foundation's bent, it's broken, it's cracked, it's, it's no good. I wait till literally the day before I intend to put a box with foundation out and then load the foundation in. It doesn't take much time when the frames are cleaned and prepped and ready to go. I think um, the one tip that I will share with you that I learned along the way is when you're ready to put foundation in a frame, bring it in the house, get it warm, put it in the frame, and then take the box out, the entire box, and put it out in the sun for a while. The afternoon sun will heat the box, which will make it more readily acceptable for the bees. It'll heat the comb, which makes it smell good, heat the... Uh, foundation I mean and from that perspective as soon as you put it in I see the beasts just start working it and I think that's a good good plan to go I have systematically destroyed all of my plastic frames the ones that had plastic foundation in them I popped it out and the question is, when you have a frame that had plastic in it, what do you do with it when you use wax? The answer is, you cut the top bar. 
To me, it became evident when inspecting the way these frames work that if you could just cut the wedge off, then you can repurpose it. And if you ever wanted to put plastic back in it, you can. Just keep the cleat tacked and slide the plastic in. I have a question for you. Is plastic okay? I know my answer. I want your answer. I'm curious to what people think. I don't particularly like it. Now, I've cleaned dozens of plastic frames, so there's no question in my mind that they work. One of the things I've seen about plastic, though, in working especially with new beekeepers, is that if they don't do their hives right, the plastic never gets built out, and it looks terrible. I can't tell you how many new beekeeper hives I've seen that have terrible plastic. Now, one of the fortunate things about plastic is it usually comes in a new beekeeper's kit, and they put it out with a package in the midst of a flow, and the bees will just do whatever they need to do to build it out. Now, this is not to say that wax doesn't work in that situation, but sometimes the bees build out wonky wax. I put foundations labeled 420 last year out in April and noticed that when I cleaned up my frames, I pulled a bunch of frames, as I typically talk about. If I get a frame that doesn't look so good, I move it to the margins, and then in the spring, I call them, cut them out. And I bet there were a half dozen frames that I put into service last year that had 420 on them that, for whatever reason, I didn't like the way the bees built them out, and I replaced them. So I know for a fact that wax foundation is not pristine and perfect every single time you put it in. Now, some people say they like plastic. Let me tell you the reasons why. Easy to put together. Black plastic, you can see the larva. It comes pre-waxed. You don't have to do anything. It's great in an extractor. So on and so on and so on. You, you certainly could sell me, if you had to, on why plastic is convenient and functional. Because, believe me, there's tons and tons of beekeepers, especially the commercial folks, that are using it. But I look back to some of the other things that they talk about in the periphery. When the bees dance on the comb to indicate where other bees should go, it is said that it doesn't resonate the same way. Now, my guess is I'm making a lot of do about nothing because of the fact that they must do orientation flights and they must do um, waggle dances and so on on plastic comb. Otherwise, those hives wouldn't be able to function. The bees certainly aren't going to bore through any areas in the wax when there's plastic foundation in the middle. I'm not saying they couldn't chew through if they want, but I don't ever see any holes. And what I see in my comb is every once in a while, bees will chew a hole so that they could pass right through instead of having to go down the comb, across the bottom, and back up to get to the other side. I lean towards wax. It's just my way. I like crimp wire foundation, although where I can, I try to employ foundationless, and I have a bunch of Kelly F-frames sitting there, and when I think about it, I try to put them in. 
I had an objective this year to do drone comb, but things got past me and I didn't do it. That's an interesting idea, talking about comb. So cleaning frames, except for maybe 30 frames that are out in swarm traps, all my stuff is clean, and I'm really happy about that. Now, I do have some older frames still inside, and every year I'm swapping them out. And within the next two or three years, I will have replaced everything I own. It's a show full of public service announcements. So I'll come back and say it again. If you're running old comb, I just heard this on a podcast yesterday. Cherish your old comb, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm not in that camp anymore. I think three years in that comb becomes a liability. It carries too much crud in the comb. How many times do you hear in training courses that the comb readily accepts and wicks in everything that's in the environment, good, bad, or indifferent? And I, I again go back to repeating what I learned last year. When I put fresh foundation in my working hives, the bees just thrived with them. And so I'm a convert from here on in, unless something tells me otherwise, you know what would be really great is to get foundation that is clean. I don't know how to solve that. I wish there was a way. I mean, I know the answer. The answer is let them build it out from scratch and foundationless, which is why I try to sneak foundationless frames in here and there as I build out my stuff. But, you know, you, you have to say there's nothing like the convenience of putting in wax foundation. Nine times out of ten, they get it right when it's done. So I, I'll just keep uh, reiterating my behaviors and, and my beliefs that cleaning frames, it's cathartic. It's a good thing to do. And if you haven't done it, you should make a plan. And I'll leave it at that. I think at this point I'm going to move to the local hive report. Let's get towards the end of this episode. The first thing to say is the grass is growing beautifully. Really happy about uh, that because the weather has cooperated. I think the first day I planted the grass, I had to water it and it has rained consistently. There was a lot of question in my mind about what I was going to do in the new yard. And I, ultimately I decided on grass. The funny thing is, is I got to figure out how I'm going to mow it. We were having the conversation about buying one of those roller ones that you push, like the old-fashioned one that has the sickle bar. Curious if anybody uses one of those. If you do, give me a yell. I'm Kevin at bkcorner.org. I want, I want to know how that works for you. The area that I have is not that big. I really don't feel like it would be that big of a manual chore to do it. And I kind of like the idea of it. And the other alternative for us, I don't think I'm going to bring the lawn tractor up into this yard. So from that perspective, I have to get a push mower, which we don't own. And the push mower, you know, agitates the bees as it rolls by, although nine times out of ten, they don't care. To the actual bees, added a six-frame box over the Six over six over six on pad number one. That hive is banging. Pad number two is still trying to find itself. It's a two six frame stack polystyrene, both of those hives. It'll get there. 
I could see the brood patterns building out and they'll double and double and double their population and in short order that'll be a full-size colony. The four over four over, no, the six over six over six over six four stack that was on pad three, now sitting in the 10 frame poly hive, that hive is flying like crazy. It has to be either number two or number three strongest hive in the yard. I didn't peek in it. I'll probably peek in it this weekend if the weather allows. But my expectation is that hive is right where it needs to be and is growing in leaps and bounds. And looking at pad number four, which is the cedar hive, it's okay. It's kind of like the hive on pad number two. They'll build one or two more generations and then it'll be off to the races. I'm going to stop here and talk about two and four thinking it would be nice if they were bigger colonies at this juncture. However, because I want to do queen rearing, I'd like to get to a point where some of those colonies are really at their peak of population of building new bees. And at the time, which I think is going to be mid-May, both of these hives are going to fall into that category. So they make good candidates to do queen rearing with because they'll have large populations of really new bees. And they'll be, they'll have a forager workforce that'll be going out in droves and bringing back lots of resources. So that's what I'm thinking about those two hives. If I come back to my theory about the supreme hive and not being a good thing, five qualifies for that. Pad five is the all medium hive. Hive is just berserk crazy i went out there the other night 6 p.m at night and pulled the split from it bob Kloss came over and i was able to pull a box out and give him a box to take home and i needed to do a split from that hive six o'clock at night none of the other bees were flying it was kind of cool they were not very happy when we pulled it and the hive was bearding that's how much activity is going on when we went through the the top medium of a four box stack every side was a three i usually rate the bees as a one two or three in the population far side near side 10 frames a three couldn't put more bees in there. Brewed all the way through it. And on one frame, there was a queen cell that was on the verge of being capped. And on frame number nine, there's a small hole that the bees built to go in between, like I was just talking about. And they built a queen cell in there, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And it was capped. In order to thwart that hive from swarming and to provide Bob with a resource, he was out somewhere and got a capped queen cell and a queen, and he needed some stock, so I figured we'd solve both problems. I could get rid of my potential swarm problem, and he could have a box to go start something up. In addition to the bees that are still in the box, I added a full-size deep with foundation, and I added a medium honey super on that box. 
So, yeah, the thing is just loaded with population. When I went out and checked it, it still has the most bees probably in the yard. Moving to the next hive, which is the top bar hive, I did it. I achieved that milestone. I put the honey boxes on there. That hive is the second strongest hive in the yard. The thing is just flying like crazy, and I suspect that they're going to build a lot of honey. So I've said this over and over again, so I won't belabor the point. It's a Langstroth top bar. I built it custom. It's using Kelly F frame. And the bees can pass through the top bar. So it's really not a top bar. It's like a lang, long lang. But it has V-shaped sides. But it will take two medium honey supers on top. And they're packing it full. I did not look in the lion's hive. My biggest concern for the lion's hive is that the population could build big enough to thwart anything that could possibly get in there like wax moths when the weather turns warm. I think they'll get there, but it's going to be a neck-and-neck neck race for that. So as far as the bee yard goes, everything's honky-dory, happy. My next quest after I finish my frame cleanup is to start prepping for my queen rearing. In the last couple of seasons, Bob Kloss and I tag-teamed. I'm pretty confident we're going to do that again. And I've been going to Bob's, and he's been building the cell builders and such. I haven't done that yet. This year I'm going to do it in my own yard. So we're going to graft queens at his place, but I'm going to try and use my cartridge at my house, which means I got to figure out how to do a cell builder, cell finisher situation. It's good for me. I'm going to learn how to do it. And I could continue my quest to understand the Nyko device, which ultimately I plan to write a book and expose the methods, hopefully, for beginners on that. So a couple years that'll take to get sorted out. Maybe in the next couple weeks we'll get a couple swarm calls. So that leads me to, to believe that I need to put together some hive equipment just in case. I always have something that I can literally scramble in five minutes. But I've lost track of where my vacuum is, and I should probably make sure I know where my swarm pole with the capture device and all of that stuff is, because I see reports on the internet already that in places around New Jersey, no surprise, April 15th, when the trees are in full bloom, that swarm season is upon us. And I am on the swarm list for New Jersey, so anticipate that here and there, like Every year I may get a call or two for that. The last thing I'll say about some of my hives is my goal, which is kind of counterintuitive to the way I run my hives because I have oddball stuff, is to make up some... How, how do I say this? I'm going to put bees out in the out yard, but I need to pull full-sized frames in anticipation of building queen castles for when I raise queens that I could start putting full-size Langstroth boxes out and out yards. I had talked about that as this year's objective and I have to build a plan for that also. What equipment am I going to use? Where am I going to put it? And so on. 
It's a busy period. Always is in spring if you're a beekeeper. These are the things you get yourself wrapped around the axle. And I, I allow myself a little leeway to make all these plans and work towards all of them, but try to execute them well. And if things don't allow the time, then I let them fall by the wayside. It depends on what has critical mass and momentum and what things, you know, I, I tend to operate to my priorities. I set more ambitions than, than what I can achieve. And then if I achieve half of them or more, I've actually done pretty well. So, you know, I always, in, in these spring episodes, talk about the 85 things I'm going to do. And if you followed me most of the time, I get a lot of them done. I don't get them all done. I was thinking about something the other day that I didn't get finished, but, you know, my waray hive is sitting in there, and that's the one I want to put a swarm in. So I haven't forgotten about that. There's a couple other hives that I'd like to put together. So, yep, no rest for the weary. Local hive report. Oh, one last thing. I'm going to head to Keith's and split his hive for him. Uh, the plan was we were going to do all that together, but... Um, he's not going to be available to do it and his hive's going to swarm if it doesn't get taken care of. So I'm going to do him a solid and go over there and do that. He bought polystyrene 10 frame and he painted it beekeeper's corner yellow, which is really, really cool. I love the hive. I was so excited to see what he put together, he and Karina. And we're going to make a split and he will be two hives in the backyard as a beginner. So that's pretty cool. His current hive is just looking spectacular. We went over recently and put another honey super on it to just give them more room so they wouldn't be so crowded. But I'm not going to be surprised if I get over there on Tuesday and find queen cells in that. Okay, now, local hive report, check. Everything's good here. I think that's the things I had to present in no particular order. So let me close out the episode with a quick comment. Among the 80,000 things I'm always doing, as I was just talking about, I created a merchandising store recently. Test drove some of the merchandise, ordered a couple samples. I see some changes I want to make. But overall, I think the materials that the Teespring store, that's the vendor I chose, we're really well suited. The designs are great. And I'm pretty excited to announce that probably in the next episode, I'll give you the URL. I'm trying to get it working. That's why I'm not announcing it now. Otherwise, I'd let you go poke around. T-shirts, mugs, decals, maybe a couple other things. As far as the markup goes on those, you have an opportunity to do 10, 20, whatever. I think I added a dollar to cost. I don't really care to make money on them. I just wanted to finally offer the opportunity for somebody if they were so inclined to wear a Beekeeper's Corner t-shirt. So in the next episode or two, I will announce it. And I'm hoping that if you're so inclined, you go out and order yourself a t-shirt. I've been talking about this for eons now, and I'm happy to say that I'm really happy with, I'm literally wearing one of the shirts right now. And I'm pretty excited to have that. So check it out. Uh, I will be teaching at the Raritan Valley 
beginner's course coming up and you know there's a bunch of other stuff going on but other than that there's really not much more to share so like our beloved bees when beekeepers go together we can accomplish great things thanks for listening everyone and be well